Okay, well this morning we are considering another parable unique to the Gospel of Luke, and that is the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's a tale, as you have seen, of dramatic reversal, a theme that is so central to the gospel. The exalted is humbled, and the humble is exalted. And Jesus presents us with two conventional figures, the Pharisee, righteous and respectable, and the publican, immoral and disgraced. And as things go, according to these two figures, we know what to expect. We know on whose side the right falls, and for that matter, who is closer to God. And surely, it's the Pharisee. It's evident by all outward measures. He prays and fasts. He tithes and gives alms. He says thanks and he renders praise. Now, he may not be perfect. Who is? But he certainly is not like the publican. Whatever the Pharisees' faults, a bit of overindulgence, a wandering eye, something else, they are mere indiscretions compared to the tax collector. As a tax collector, he is notorious for his unrighteous dealings, namely extortion, requiring people more, from more money than what was lawful. And so as a tax collector, we know his position relative to God. It doesn't take special discernment. We don't need to call a wise man to settle the affairs because the deeds speak for themselves. One is righteous, his works show it, and the other is unrighteous, his works show it. It really is that simple. Of course, until it's not. Jesus presents us with conventional figures only to turn convention on its head. The righteous man is, in fact, unrighteous, and the unrighteous man, righteous. The one near to God is, in fact, distant from God, and the one distant who stands away and won't even come near to the temple, is in fact near to God. How so? What accounts for this dramatic, unexpected, startling reversal? We can begin an answer by noting that the Pharisee inhabits a false reality. We are introduced to him in the act of prayer, verse 11 The Lord says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this, he points to the publican, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes tithes of all that I get. So let's first take the prayer on its own merits. The Pharisee thanks God. We have to notice that. He thanks God. He does not pretend to be what he is, a manifestly righteous man, on his own. It's a gift from above. 
And he recognizes that. He shows gratitude to God that he has been spared from an unrighteous life. That instead to him, the lot has fallen in pleasant places. He spends his time in contemplation. Regular fasting has become his norm. Twice a week, he gives back a tithe on everything that he gets and not merely what was required by the Torah. Now, it's a parable that Jesus tells, but it's not a caricature. Jesus' parable reflects the attitudes of the time. This prayer comes down to us from around the same time. It says, I thank thee, O Lord, my God, that thou hast given me my lot with those who sit in the seat of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. Again, notice, he's thanking God. He says, for I am early to work, and they are early to work. I am early to work on the words of the Torah, that is, the Scriptures, and they are early to work on the things of no moment. I worry myself, and they worry themselves. I worry myself and profit thereby, while they worry themselves to no profit. I run, and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come, and they run toward the pit of destruction. So both men uh, attribute their righteousness, their situation to God, and they thank him for it. Now, who can find fault with their prayer? Now, still more, it's likely that the Pharisee has gone into the inner courts of the temple, judging by the distance that the publican keeps. The Pharisee bypassed the outer courts where pagans and women had to stop, and he entered the inner precincts of the temple, nearer to God's holy presence, the holy of holies. The psalm must have rang through his head. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. The Pharisee considered himself such a blessed one, one that God has chosen to bring near to him by giving him the gift of integrity and uprightness. So we'd be wrong to understand the Pharisee as merely a self-inflated man, as merely someone who is consumed uh, with pride. He thanks God. He lives righteously. And of course, looking upon the devastation that sin causes in others' lives, Who among us hasn't expressed a similar sentiment? Quietly, within our hearts, giving thanks that we've been spared. Thank you, God, that my life is not like his or hers or that my family did not turn out like theirs. It really is, especially for us Christians, a natural and reflective response. Thank you, Lord, that my life didn't turn out like that. Now, that's the Pharisee's take on things. That's how he views his prayer. And it's mostly our take on things. But it's certainly not the Lord's. Though the Pharisee prays, thank you, God, and we have no reason to doubt his sincerity, Jesus says that in truth, he was praying this to himself. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, and Jesus says, 
he was praying this to himself. In other words, his piety was not genuine service to God, but it was service to his own ego. He may have thought his devotion sincere, and it seems he did, but regardless of his perception, it remained all about him. He was praying this to himself. And it has a remarkable ability to smuggle itself into the very heart of our religious devotion. Pride does. One can lapse into the same error as the Pharisee without ever noticing it, carrying on their habitual devotion while supposing it to be genuine and true. In such cases, God is incidental to the matter. He is a mere means to an end. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity asked the question, how is it that someone who is so obviously eaten up with pride can nevertheless think themselves to be a very religious person? How can those two things coexist? Well, he answers, he says, I'm afraid it means that they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. In other words, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, such a person pays a pinch of humility to God in order to get from it a pound of pride toward other people. So thus, in the end, the Pharisee, the very thing that he imagined to bring him near to God, namely his righteousness, I'm not like other people, I fast, I tithe, is in fact the very thing that keeps him from God, that makes God distant from him. It, ju- it did just the opposite. And what was his error? Well, Luke tells us at the beginning of, uh, right before the parable, he says that the Pharisee trusted in himself. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. Or, to frame it in another way, his confidence before God was self-confidence. The Pharisee's confidence before God was self-confidence. I am not like other men, he said. So the Pharisee presumed to have God's favor because he made out better than others, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and tax collectors. One commentator explains his mindset this way. The Pharisees do not understand that sin is not defined by comparing one person to another, but by grasping how deeply he, as an individual, is enmeshed in a world mired in godlessness. Sin is a universal condition, but this is not fully obvious unless um, uh, one is God-directed. It's not obvious unless one is God-directed. So in other words, there's always going to be worse sinners, exceptionally bad people whom we can use as a foil to make ourselves look better. But the problem is that we cannot discover the truth about ourselves in comparison to others. We can only understand the truth about ourselves in relation to God. And so to the extent that we, like the Pharisee, 
are content to judge ourselves in relation to others, we're deceived. We're deceived about ourselves, and ultimately we're deceived about God. Our religion, our devotion becomes a figment of our imagination. So in contrast to the Pharisee, who thinks he serves God, but in turn, but in reality serves himself, the tax collector, the publican, he lives in reality. About him, Jesus says in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So confident in his own righteousness, the Pharisee strode into the temple's inner precincts, but the tax collector stood some distance away. In other words, he felt no grounds on which he could approach near to God. He had no confidence in himself. His unrighteousness and his treacherous, treacherous behavior were obvious to him. Why? Well, he knew himself in relation to God. He knew himself as he is in truth. He kept his distance, and moreover, he would not even turn his eyes to heaven. He hung his head, and he beat his chest, and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if we measure ourselves in relation to others, we may be a sinner, but never as The tax collector says here, the sinner. There's always someone still worse off than us by whom we can excuse ourselves. But before the holiness of God, the truth comes home. Compared to him, we all learn to pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so how strange then, this reversal. Though he feels entirely distant from God, the publican is in fact near to God. The very thing that he imagined to separate him from God, namely his sin, proved in fact to do just the opposite. The Pharisee's righteousness, his good works, his good life were a barrier to God. And the publican's unrighteousness, his terrible life, proved to be an open door to God. The one who exalts himself is cast down, and the one who humbles himself is raised up. So we learn then, in this dramatic reversal, that if we are to come before God as he actually is, and not merely as a figment of our imagination, we must come before him humbly, forsaking all confidence in ourselves, placing our entire hope in his mercy and kindness. As Martin Luther once said, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores to health none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. But I want to restart and begin again, this time from a different angle. 
Remember Luke's original comment. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and viewed others with contempt. Now those two things, trusting in oneself and viewing others with contempt, always travel together. A critical spirit and an accusatory attitude are the flowers of a heart that trusts in its own righteousness. The Pharisee, because he's trapped in self-deception, has to prove his own rightness over and against others. The publican, remember, the tax collector, he received his justification from God, from God's mercy and kindness. But the Pharisee, he chose rather to earn his justification, to prove it. And those two um, approaches yield vastly different results. They yield vastly different approaches to life. Now, we'll come to the other, but again, the one who chooses to earn their justification must constantly prove their justification. As Jesus remarks to the Pharisees in a different context, Luke sixteen fifteen, he says, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. So there it is. Those who choose to prove themselves must prove themselves over and against others, that is, in the sight of men. Hence the comparison that the Pharisee makes. I thank you, God, he prays, that I am not like other people. And therein lies the vindication for his existence, the bedrock of his identity and confidence. I, I am not like other people. There is my justification. And so on that grounds, he's bold to enter the inner precincts of the temple. He's bold to raise up his prayer before God in confidence because he knows that at the end of the day, he's more righteous than them. So when casting them down, the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, he exalts his own person. Now, he's not without fault, surely, but compared to them, right, compared to those severe sinners, he's a saint, He's worthy to be accepted by God. You see, unless your vindication comes from God alone, you will seek it elsewhere. And typically, it's by proving yourself over and against others. So if we don't seek our justification from above, then we must say in one form or another, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, whomever that may be the liberals or the woke or whatever straw man that we want to set up, I'm not like them, and therefore God accepts me. But as we said, this is all self-deception. Excessive self-confidence, the kind that the Pharisee exudes here, is always a failure in judgment. To know oneself as they truly are before God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the apostle says the following, for, though the grace, for through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment. 
So the exhortation here is to have a true estimation of ourselves. That is, not overestimating ourselves, be it our goodness or our righteousness or whatever. The apostle wants the truth about us for each one of us. And that requires, he says, sound judgment. It's an interesting word that he uses in the Greek, and it means quite literally to be sane, to be in the right state of mind, or to be sensible. In other words, to truly know ourselves, our feet need to be firmly planted in reality. Uh, They need to be according to the way things actually are. And thus, to put the Apostle Paul's logic in reverse, the overestimation of ourselves is a kind of insanity. To think such high thoughts about ourselves, he says, we have to be disconnected from reality, fundamentally unsound in our thinking about ourselves, about the world, and about God. Again, Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, the apostle says, he deceives himself. Now that said, humility is not about self-hatred, which is in truth merely another form of pride. It is rather an accurate estimation of ourselves, one that is rooted in reality. And there's a great distance between those two things. God does not want us to hate ourselves, but to know ourselves as we are in truth before him. And so it's when we lose touch with reality, with our true condition, that contempt for others enters the picture. We lose touch with the pervasiveness of sin in our own life. How entrenched it remains despite our best and sincere efforts. We forget our own treachery, how how startlingly quick we can turn against the truth and goodness. Now, we may not necessarily praise ourselves and laud our accomplishments. Rather, we simply brush aside these darker realities, and we lose touch with them. And the problem is only compounded by the fact that we start to live right. Or at least our lives are better than other people's. We have forgotten our own sin and now we only see our good deeds. Like the Pharisee, what sticks in our consciousness are our own superior efforts. Well, I go to church. Well, I do this. Well, I read my Bible. Whatever. And so we mimic his words. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all that I get. And it's then, that moment, when contempt for others comes naturally. Our faulty self-perception determines our perception of others. I'm making it happen. What's your problem? Why can't you get it together and just stop sinning? You must not be trying. You must be exceptionally sinful. You must not care as much as I do. And so once sin can be seen as something in others' lives, then I can let myself off the hook. I may go wrong here and there. I may stray a little bit. I might slip up. But at heart, I'm safe and I'm sanctified because I'm not like others. And thus I'm blinded. So concerned about them, I cannot see, as Jesus says, the beam in my own eye. And my judgment 
because it's not according to truth, destroys me. And certainly it's not always the case. I don't intend to paint with a broad brush, but generally, where there's smoke, there's fire. Being ever so quick to judgment, critical and nitpicky of others, is usually a sign of such self-deception that one has lost touch with themselves. And that pattern plays out on the individual and the corporate scale. As individuals, with our spouse, our children, our friends, even other believers, and corporately, and how the church has earned itself a reputation of smug self-righteousness. It happens when we lose touch with the truth, forgetting that apart from the grace of God, there is no health in us. Thus, as a general rule, we ought never to place ourselves above anyone, not even great sinners. Instead, we must leave all judgment to God who judges justly. Basil of Caesarea, writing somewhere in the 4th century, he says this in his treaty on humility. Be not an unjust judge of yourself, and do not weigh your case favorably to yourself. If you appear to have done something in your favor, do not, counting this to your credit and readily forgetting your past mistake or your mistakes, boast of your good to, your good deeds today and grant yourself pardon for what you have done badly in the past. Whenever the present arouses pride in you, recall the past to mind that you will check the foolish swelling of conceit. If you see your neighbor committing sin, take care not to dwell exclusively on his sin, but think of the many things he has done and continues to do rightly. Many times by examining the whole and not taking the part only into account, you will find that he is better than you. Now, Basil's language seems harsh, a bit abrasive, but in practice, in someone's actual life, this is beautiful. We love those rare people who walk humbly, who are quick to acknowledge their faults, who deflect from themselves and put attention toward others, who rather than destroying and defaming another's reputation, build it up, who, rather than easily speaking harsh and unkind words, choose only to speak kind and edifying words. We love people like that. They're rare, they're uncommon. And they are so by being intimately familiar with their own failings and as ignorant as possible about the failings of others. Now, such temperance, such refusal to cast judgment is easily mistaken, however, for blithe tolerance, a refusal to take sin seriously. Now, in some cases, it is a reluctance to draw sharp lines, to identify absolute rights and wrongs, truths and falsehoods. And all that is, is a misdirected humility or an outright cowardice to stand up for the truth. But biblically speaking, it's not. Rather, abstaining from judgment is about making place for the judgment of God and to show due humility before it. 
To repeat the Pharisees' move and to set ourselves above others in judgment is to claim an innocence that we cannot claim, and so to ignore the universal judgment of God. In that which you judge another, says the Scripture, you condemn yourself. So the Pharisee, as his own judge, vindicated himself and condemned others and thus is condemned by God. But the publican, who refused to judge others, but instead only himself, he is vindicated by God. He refuses judgment, turns it upon himself, and thus is viewed favorably by the judgment of God. And of course, there are situations when sin is to be dealt with in correction, and in severe cases, church discipline. And the church does as an institution, have a judicial responsibility. But that's not the same as we find here. The church's judgment in expelling unrepentant people from the body is something different altogether, exercised in fear and, ju- and trembling. The judgment that we find here that the Lord sets himself against is the kind of judgment that's a means to self-exaltation not to protecting other believers, not to watching over the body, but as a means to exalt myself, to excuse myself. It doesn't attempt to discern God's judgment, but it attempts to usurp God's judgment. But look now at the tax collector. He harbors no illusions about his condition. His critical gaze is turned upon no one but himself. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One church father put it this way. He says, if you have a corpse laid out in your own front room, you don't have the leisure to go to a neighbor's funeral. So the tax collector is well aware of the corpse before him, his own sin. And thus, he has neither the time nor the inclination to attend another's funeral. So put simply, an accurate self-estimation makes us tender and merciful toward others. We no longer harbor vain imaginations about our righteousness, but we know ourselves at length, who we are before God. And of course, then, who, knowing their own infinite need for mercy, cannot but extend that mercy toward others. So there's a pattern there. The less seriously you take sin in your own life, the more you're going to be harsh with it in other people's lives. But the more seriously we take sin in our own lives, the more prepared we are to be gentle and kind to others. And it's for one simple reason. We know that they struggle with the same disease that we do. The same power of sin that so often overcomes us and humbles us to the dust that we have to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I failed again, again. Here I am in the same place. That own struggle in our life makes us tender toward other people. They're no different. They struggle against the same powerful, overwhelming enemy. And so such is the exercise of Christ's priestly ministry. And he passes that ministry on to us. 
The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4, 15, chapter 4, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Having entered into our hopeless condition, having experienced the overwhelming power of sin, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He knows, and thus he helps us. In infinite mercy and compassion, he takes upon himself the burden of our sin, and not only takes it upon himself, but he carries it away. And that priestly ministry that he exercised for us, moved with compassion, not just to feel bad, but to do something about it, is the ministry that he passes along to us. That recognizing our own weakness, that we too might have sympathy for our brothers and sisters. Yet not merely sympathy. Sympathy makes us slow to judgment, but that's more for our own good than it is for them. Sympathy must be accompanied by concrete action. Christ, our high priest, sympathizes with us, yes, but more importantly, he acts to rescue us. We must also act in the lives of our brothers and sisters because it's Christ's law. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And that law is simple. As he's done for us, so we are to do for others. To their wounds, to their sin in their, li- in their lives, we are to minister the healing gospel dispelling guilt with forgiveness, casting away shame with compassion, pulling them out of sin with encouragement and patience. Our stumbling brothers and sisters do not need our judgment. They have enough of that from Satan himself and their own conscience. They need for us to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to their hearts. Only grace overcomes sin. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that, at last, brings us to the children. The disciples want to turn them away, and presumably their mothers. But Jesus welcomes them, proclaiming, verse 16 and 17 of our passage, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter in it at all. It's often been wondered, why children? Why do we have to receive the kingdom as children? And commentators have typically sought some virtue or quality in children, say, innocence or sincerity or innate trust that makes them fit for the kingdom. I think, however, that misses the point. Insofar as Jesus came to give the kingdom to the poorest and the least, children are model subjects of the kingdom. Children are needy and dependent objectively. Adults have to become childlike. So Jesus not only receives children, but he calls adults to be like the children he receives. 
And consider the figures that are held up for us as uh, in order to emulate in this chapter. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the oppressed widow. Entirely dependent, has nothing in her favor. Now, this week, the disgraced tax collector who can't even summon himself to look up his eyes toward heaven. And then next week, the rich man who is turned away and the poor who is accepted in his place. Such are the people that the kingdom is meant for, the least. And unless we become like them, small, we're too big for the kingdom. And all of our dignity and self-regard and independence will not be able to make it through the small, humble door of the kingdom. Our ego won't let us in. And moreover, in that state, I'm not even sure that we'll want to enter that door. If we are to receive the kingdom, we must receive it as children. So be converted, the Lord tells us. Become as I, humble and meek and poor in spirit. And so now as we come to celebrate Holy Communion with one another, as the music will shortly play in the background, that's exactly our aim. The Lord was humbled that we might be exalted. As the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But of course, to receive the exaltation that comes from the hands of Christ, we must become humble. And so we do. I want to take this time before communion to become like a child, to confess our weakness and our sin, and to cast ourselves entirely like the publican on the infinite grace and mercy of Christ. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the scripture says, and in due time, he will exalt you. So do that now, and I will lead us in prayer in just a minute.